emergency reducing of our climate ambitions. This week, it's an emergency and everyone is panicking. And that is clearly the only possible outcome of talking about climate change. Paraphrasing Mike Nickel, anyway. Plus, we'll talk about tech, the missing middle, and open streets. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 51. We're in the throes of catastrophic climate change. It is an emergency in Edmonton City Council, and as such, we have sirens that go off every hour on the hour. This is clearly what the motion entailed. We'll get to that in the episode, but first up, the rapid fire segment. There's a business venture in Edmonton where you can pay someone $15 an hour to stand in Jollibee's line. That's it. That's the joke. Sometimes people will tell you to look at the evidence. If something doesn't work the world over and millions of people who try regularly fail, you probably shouldn't do the exact same thing as them every week for 30 years. But Bon Trong didn't listen, and after buying a lottery ticket with the same number for over 30 years, he's now $60 million richer. Inspired by Albertan success in the face of overwhelming odds by committing to an objectively bad plan, Don Iveson this week pledged to double the number of free parking stalls in Edmonton. Hey, it hasn't worked for us for 50 years, hasn't worked for anyone else in the world, and flies in the face of science and good urban planning. But if it does work, well... That'll be like winning the lottery. With nearly 850,000 visitors, this year's Fringe Festival had record high attendance. Despite bad weather and a couple high-profile snafus, box office revenue was up a full 18% over last year. The Fringe, which is unjuried and awards shows based on a lottery, also said in a press release that the random show selector generated over $120,000 in revenue this year, highlighting Edmonton's willingness to, quote, take a chance. Honestly, if you're looking to take a lesson out of the news this week, apparently it's this. Gamble. The riskier, the better. Because hey, if you lose, catastrophic climate change will wipe us all out in all of our lifetimes anyway. So, shrug emoji. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This week, we're going to tell you about Unit B, which is a multi-company co-working space focused on helping people pursue their passions and making Edmonton its creative best. You can join a tight-knit group of freelancers, startups, and more established organizations, all dedicated to getting things done. They've got desks and offices, a podcasting studio, meeting spaces, a kitchen, even Wi-Fi. It's located in the historic McKinney Building on 104th Street, close to everything downtown. You can book a tour at unitb.ca. So, Mac, we normally plan these episodes based on last week, but this week in a special committee meeting, we have hot off the presses news. We're recording Thursday evening. Yeah, and they had a special utility committee meeting today to talk all about a new 25-year waste management strategy. So... I haven't read the report. You've read at least a bit of it. Um, I'm going to hazard some guesses and you can tell me how far I'm off. Sure. Uh, This report was a bunch of empty platitudes saying we're hoping to get to the 90% target without meaningfully doing anything that will get us there. Like, for example, having a working composting facility. Hmm, It's like you've read reports from council before. (laughs) Uh, That is essentially what happened. Uh, The 25-year waste strategy says we're going to reaffirm this commitment that we've all talked about in the past, that we're going to divert 90% of our waste from landfill. Footnote there, that wasn't just a commitment. Edmonton administration said we were hitting that target before. Yeah, they lied to us for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And now they're saying that we're going to do it for real this time, I guess. But as you say, there's some limited 
evidence that a new plan is in place to do anything about that. The biggest change, aside from banning single-use plastics in January 2021, is a switch to a four-stream bin system. So this will require you to separate organics, recyclables, residual waste, and yard waste. And then that's starting next summer. So they're going to implement that for single-family homes. And then the following year, it'll get implemented for multifamily and everybody else. They're going to do this pilot with the black bin. So they're going to start with a big one and then they're going to give you the option to choose a smaller one later on. This is this is the thing they think is going to help us get to 90%. Although if you read the report, it really only expects a 7 to 11% improvement. And what are we at? 38? Optimistically, the best, like we're going to hit 60%. And this is based on this like four stream recycling with special bins, which they've been piloting at a few neighborhoods. That's right. It's already been a, a small pilot. Yeah. yeah, and people have been judiciously separating their waste so that the trucks could pick them up, put them in a single truck, and throw it all in the landfill. Right. Because we don't have a composting facility. It doesn't have a roof. Um. So if you're hearing me be a little bit down on our waste strategy, it's because there's nothing to be really up on there. This report uh, is just approved by committee, so it still has to go to council for full approval, but... I'd be surprised if it doesn't. Councillor Walters said, uh, I do not want this strategy to be chapter two of the same fairy tale that we were telling citizens before when we only achieved 38% diversion. So we have to make sure we have the ability to deliver, end quote. And does the report give you any indication, Councillor, that they are going to be able to deliver? Not a lot of confidence, I would say. He had an interesting back and forth with Chris Labossier, who's a well-known local tech entrepreneur, but he's also got a background in waste and has a local waste management company. He called this a 30-year train wreck that's been going on and was there to advocate for more private involvement in waste management, something that Councillor Walters seemed open to, at least during the discussion. Um, Labossier was worried that we'll go and build another facility with taxpayer dollars without knowing for sure if it's going to work or not. And I mean, we do have a storied history of that. Gray's paper recycling was an example of an Edmonton institution saying, hey, we're going to build this recycling facility and do all this paper and make a new paper product in Edmonton. We discovered after spending tens of million dollars building it that, hey, the product was bad and there was no market for it. I would say, though, that I'm not a strong advocate for additional privatization of our public resources. Go figure. That seems so off brand for me. <laughs> Shocking. Because especially when you're doing things like risky plays or with climate change, just like the scope of this problem, you need sort of the socialized risk of public institutions to, I think, be able to solve this. I don't think that privatizing is a solution here, but I do think that doing something differently is required here. And more than what's been proposed because it's not going to get us to the 90% figure. Uh, interestingly, over in Singapore, they've got a great solution where it's just they've conscripted the citizens into active sorting. Instead of having a big expensive facility that has you know AI scanners with cameras and weight sensors and fancy blowing fans to separate different types of plastics and recyclables, they just have the citizens put them into like 20 different bins on a truck that comes around every day. And when you conscript all your citizens into service, uh, you get a huge labor force for basically free. I guess this four stream process is a step in the right direction then? Uh, maybe, but it also seems like a baby step in a direction, but enough of a step to say, hey, we tried. Hmm. I think that's the most dangerous thing the city can do is to do enough to say, hey, we tried, 
but we failed. So this problem is unsolvable. Let's not do it at all. Right. Which is something I've seen the city do in the past. So this goes to council for approval in the next two weeks. So we'll definitely hear more about this. I'm sure there will be media reports. I'm sure councillors will get all manner of grandstanding on this. For now, let's jump back to what happened last week. Travel back in time to last Sunday. And if I can set the scene, it's Sunday. It's a nice day. It's not summer because Edmonton, but it's a nice day. It was was warm, sunny, sunny. It was very windy, but and we're wandering over to Jasper Ave, which is normally a seven lane freeway full of cars. And last Sunday it wasn't. And you were there. That's right. We had the Open Streets Edmonton event on Jasper Avenue. So they closed Jasper Avenue from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. from 103rd Street to 109th Street uh, with a couple of offshoots on 104 and 108. And the whole idea of this event, it's based on um, the event you might have heard of called a Cyclovia that happens many other places around the world. The whole idea is let's take this space that is now primarily used for cars and reclaim it for people. So there were cyclists and pedestrians, lots of strollers, um, rollerblades and skateboards. They had um, bird and lime scooters for people to try. They had these funky unicycle type bicycle thingies that were really really hard to do i tried it and i was horrible at it it was they're very difficult to operate (laughs) i didn't see any segues but you would have expected to see those too so all different kinds of things on the street except for cars and it was a lot of fun uh they had bouncy castles they had um acrobatic dogs like you might see at k days they had a little market with some vendors um there was food and stuff along the way there was a lemonade stand there was people walking up and down it was lots and lots of fun but and I'm looking at the notes for this item and there's just one line in the notes and it says Mac has some thoughts. I'm hearing a but. Yeah, the but is we didn't actually close the street to cars. We kept the 106th Street intersection partially open. They had police officers directing traffic, stopping pedestrians and other cyclists and stuff so that they could let cars go through the middle of the event. Okay. The event was only like six blocks, 103 to 109. There's arterials on 109 Street, 101, 102. There's the East West Avenue. Right. There's a lot of ways for vehicles to get around. And like 102 Ave is still open. Right. And there's alley access. There is no. And it's a Sunday from 10 to 3. Even peak hours on a weekday. Jasper Ave doesn't ferry how how many people attended this event. Yeah, so when I talked to uh, the organizer, so Paths for People is the organization that put this on, the executive director, Sarah Hoyles, I talked to her midway through the event, and she told me that they were expecting, you know, maybe 5,000 people would come out to this thing. And by about 1.30, they were already estimating up closer to 15,000 people. So this was a well-attended event with a lot of non-car people at it. And it just seemed so bizarre to me that the the purpose of this event is to allow the streets to be used not for cars, and we couldn't even do that. We had to keep part of it open for vehicles. So you mentioned you talked to the city and EPS. Did you find out why? Like, what's the justification for leaving this road in the middle of an open streets event open to cars? So I found a couple of things that were quite interesting. The first is that uh, actually the first plan that the transportation department put forward had all of the intersections between 103 and 109 (laughs) partially open. So they would have had police directing traffic at every intersection and paths for people quite rightly pushed back and said, "Mm, we're going to be a little bit more ambitious. 
And so the compromise was to just have 106th open, which has a bike lane there. And the rationale the city gave me was um, that they needed to alleviate traffic congestion. They were worried there would be too much traffic congestion if they didn't have part of the site plan open. On a Sunday. Yeah. So they had police directing traffic there. They had police elsewhere as well because... One of the neat things they did about 108th was they closed it all the way from Jasper to the ledge so you could scooter up and down without worrying about cars. Um, they said they spent, of the $60,000 that the city spent on this event, about 18000 of that was on policing. The big barrier to doing events like this is just cost. And we've heard it from festivals right. all over the city. The big cost that's constantly ballooning is policing, transit rerouting, and traffic direction. And that's costs that they festivals don't have an option. The city foists these onto the festivals. Right. In this case, though, the city paid for its own foisting. They yes. didn't force the festival to pay because this has been in the planning for several years. I find it completely baffling that there was just no commitment to this event because we've seen we've seen in the media the city say, oh, this is such an exciting event. We're so excited to activate these streets. But on the other hand, they're not actually letting the event do what the event wants to do, which is let's reclaim the space for people. Yeah, just they only for an afternoon. They only partially followed through on the intent. And it's just perfectly emblematic of the car culture that we have in Edmonton, that we're going to talk about an event for pedestrians and not for cars. And we just still can't let go of the cars. We're prepping for the downtown park that will have a car lane running straight through it. This is the most Edmonton thing you can do. Okay, one last thing to mention uh, on that note, while I was talking to Sarah Hoyles, the ED of uh, Pass for People, she all of a sudden was like, oh my goodness, and I didn't know what had happened, and she said, shirtless rollerblading guy just went through the event. And so that's how you know it's an Edmonton event. Uh, we'll move on from the Open Streets event to something far more urgent, mm. uh, the climate emergency, which... We can use the word emergency. That's on an official motion now. Edmonton has declared a state of climate emergency, courtesy of Councillor Paquette. So much for saying we did enough with the declaration. Yeah, and Iveson Schirsch changed his tune this week. He was very up on the climate emergency. He was one of the 10 that voted in favor for it. Can you guess who voted against it, dear listener? I mean... You gotta, you've gotta know it's good old John D from Ward 3, friend of the podcast, Councillor Mike Nickel, who you heard in the opening of the show, a paraphrasing, and of course, Councillor Katarina, who angrily curmudgeoned against the whole idea. Good old Toncat. Um, so this climate emergency, we talked about this briefly last week about some of the value of perhaps virtue signaling this was this just virtual signaling or was there some sort of motivation attached to it well there was two things they voted on which is interesting so one is this declaration of an emergency right so that is the thing that is getting all the headlines but prior to that vote they voted through the committee recommendation from last week which is this eight point plan to try to align emissions targets with the carbon budget so this is for that energy transition uh, committee and, and the work that um, they do to help inform the strategy. Council approved that as well. So, you know, there's a bit of meat behind this, but largely, and, and what is mostly being picked up is the virtue signaling. So you've had like Councillor Nickel went on a couple radio shows, went on Lachlan Cross's show, who, if you go back in history, uh, Lachlan Cross said on the radio, 
that Troy guy, I wanted to kill him. He was so <laughs> frustrating on Reddit. The bike nerd really got under his skin. Uh, apparently. It's a very conservative show. It's titled The Locker Room. So what are you going to do? But there was a very staunch narrative from the more right wing. So The Locker Room and some of the Sun columnists. This is a waste of money. This is a waste of breath. And Counselor Nickel was sort of leading that charge. Right. But when you start saying that on the radio, you start attracting a certain brand of people who don't think climate change is real. Right. And your message becomes intermingled with that message. And it's very hard to come out against a statement of climate emergency and not agree and give a platform to climate change deniers. Right. Which... If you looked at any Twitter thread, if you looked at the call into the radio show, I think that was invariably what happened this week with the three counselors who opposed this. Now, that's a great point. It's a strategically difficult thing to navigate in that you're bundling these two things together that shouldn't really be together. So that's an issue for sure. I do want to highlight one thing from Michael Walters again, Council Walters. He said, straight talk about climate emergency. I supported it because as the co-lead of our energy transition and climate change adaptation initiatives, how could I not? I kind of appreciated that very honest take about why he voted for that. I mean, I'm, he believes in the, the cause and everything as well, but I, I appreciated his uh, frankness there in why he voted yes. I talked to Councillor Paquette briefly about this, and he very much understood that, you know, this was a symbolic gesture, but he did push back on the idea that it's valueless because as part of all of these two motions, what we get is we have an accelerated plan, we have quarterly public updates, and we have serious justification to slow sprawl and offer more mobility options and transit options. And we have a justification on the books for that. We can say there there's an emergency and we need investments in the system. You saw counselors saying, like Andrew Knack saying, because of climate change, we have to invest $1.6 billion into additional drainage capacity because our one in 100 year storms are more frequently than 100 years. So you're seeing a sort of counter narrative of climate change is expensive, so we have to make investments. And this motion might give some of some of the oomph to actually push through there. That argument makes sense but it's also completely ridiculous because it's <laughs> it's not like council hadn't already approved plans mdps tmps other documents that stated basically the same thing we shouldn't sprawl and we should get people out of cars like that's already something we voted on as a city countless times in the last decade i don't see how declaring an emergency materially changes our intent Maybe the plan does something to help move us more proactively toward execution, um, but it's not like this is a new principle or a new vision. Like, we've already agreed that that's what we should be doing. I will mention that good old Don Iveson, our mayor, mm. did have part of his re-election platform, suburbs will pay their way. Haven't seen material action on that, Donnie boy. This gives you that... Here's your justification. Let's Let's see some action there. Speaking of... Nothing related to that at all. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's I was like, no where is he going with this? <laughs> there's no transition here. We're just going to talk about Duchess because it's close to my house. Oh, that's the thing. I can walk to it. Therefore, I don't use a car. That's the transition. Okay. That's the segue. I like that. This is, I put this on here specifically because it's your hood. 
And yeah. I knew you'd want to say something about it. So Ritchie Market, the most trendy place in Edmonton these days, seemingly, um, it's getting another new store. Duchess Bake Shop is opening their second location and they're opening it five blocks from my house. So I'm pretty stoked about that. We're also getting another donut party across the right. street from Duchess. Yeah. There's a lot of discussion about what we should call this. Um, I'm a personally a fan of the icing district. Um, <laughs> You've kind ice cream here too. Does that count? Yeah. Dessert district. I don't know. Yeah. And there's, if we're going to call it icing district, it has to be the icing district just to get under Daryl Katz's nice. skin. Nice. Um, there's not a lot to say on this other than I joke about Richie Market being the trendy place, but it is. Yeah. Honestly, 76th Ave in Richie is sort of becoming the 124th Street of not 124th Street. Mm. Um, we've got Pharaoh down the streets, and it's like the whole strip. It's becoming this like trendy place that's a destination, and it's always packed. And this brought me to another thing that happened this week, which is the missing middle report. Yeah. And we're past the friendly competition and into the meat of like, how do we make this happen in the zoning bylaw, right? Yeah. So there was amendments passed to the zoning bylaw this week. And oh boy, were they dense. I spent a couple hours trying to read this report. And it's just like a lot of bylaws with lines crossed out, replaced by slightly similar lines with one word different. It is dull stuff. They did it that way so that you wouldn't read it. Probably. Apparently. Yeah. Um, and here's the thing. Even after reading it, it's still pretty dull. Understanding what happened, there's not a lot that happened here. So I think the couple key components that I'll break down is it's definitely a step forward. What happened in this report is one of the things that we approved that's unquestionably a good thing is you can now have a basement suite and a garage or garden suite. So previously, you have a basement suite in your house, mm -hmm. a legal basement suite, if you want to build a garage suite, suddenly you have to demolish that basement suite and not be able to rent it out, which is an absurd policy. You clearly, especially in areas where, you know, there's single family houses everywhere, we can support additional density and we want to support additional density. Right. So it was ridiculous not to allow this when garage suites were permitted uses on all lots. So that's unquestionably a benefit. And everyone seems to be on side with that. That's basically all it did. Uh, it made another small changes like for example row housing stacked row housing these all became uh, multi-unit housing the definition change is important because there was a lot of discussion about well we can't envision future housing forms like what if we wanted to have courtyard housing where there's six buildings that all face into a courtyard and sure yeah no we're just we're setting you know maximum widths maximum site coverage and saying, you can do whatever you want as long as you're within these parameters. So these are all good things. But you don't sound as positive as, say, the Infill Development Association, which said, you know, have you heard the good news? The zoning bylaw just got much better. Yeah. So the thing is, this helps everywhere else except where the problem is. And the problem is in the mature neighborhood overlay. Interesting. This is the area that's the core area of the city. So it's my hood, Richie, Hazeldine, yep. Queen Alexandra on the north side, you know, just north of downtown. It's this big circle that's almost the inner ring road. And it's quote unquote character housing. It's the post-war suburbs where, you know, 1940s, 1950s, we threw up a ton of houses because there was a baby boom. The boomers, again, destroying everything. We have said 
with a mature neighborhood overlay, we need to preserve the character of these neighborhoods. So there's special restrictions. You can't build closer to the road. You can't build certain types of housing. You can't build this height. There's a lot of restrictions that are basically there to appease the old people. So no matter what your house or your area is zoned as, if it falls within the MNO, this overlay, those rules take precedent. Yeah. Um, and there's some minor changes. Most of the mature neighborhood overlay is RF3 or RF5, which is low density housing or medium density mm. housing. My neighborhood of Hazeldean and the Ritchie Market is RF3. So this brings it back to the Duchess Bake Shop, where we're talking about we have this area that very much could be a pedestrian utopia. It could be a new town center. It could be a new 124th. Right. Except it's all zoned RF3. So how much can we reasonably do? RF3 in the MNO. RF3 in the MNO. We had speakers at the council meeting about this missing middle report saying, well, look, these regulations say we can do something like a fourplex on the lot, mm -hmm. but with how the regulations are actually worded and the site coverage and all these technical stipulations that exist, we can't actually build anything above a duplex. And that's actually very insidious because if you look at the economics of a neighborhood like mine, I bought my house $350,000. That's that's like starter upper end of starter home price, but like around the 300, 325, that's the sweet spot for a new family. In a mature neighborhood, if you tear down a house and build a duplex, each side's going for 500k. Right. So the only option for a new family is to get an old fixer upper or one of these small houses. But that's only a single house. So what we're saying is there's an existing stock of new families being able to move in. And that's ever depleting because infill is coming in and tearing down these old houses to build new, more expensive houses that people can't afford. Yeah. So we're gentrifying out of this neighborhood that's on the up and up. This is a trendy area that people would love. Urbanists would love to live close to Ritchie Market. And on the other hand, we're saying we need to preserve the character of the neighborhood. The character of this neighborhood was dead before Ritchie Market. <laughs> right. It was in decline. And people didn't want to live here. We yourself have, notwithstanding. Yeah. And now we have new schools in this neighborhood. We have every indicator of the neighborhood flourishing except new affordable housing in a variety of forms. And it's all because the MNO isolates this. It specifically by design. So we've talked in a previous episode about the zoning bylaw renewal and, and city plan. It's related to that. Do you think there's any hope that we can overcome this? No. Okay. Um, this is, in fact, much worse because city plan has given up on the core. The city plan update, which we saw recently, we haven't talked about a lot on the podcast. White Ave LRT is gone now right. yeah. with the city plan saying, we want to focus less on the core and we want to focus more on town centers. So Millwood's town center over by Wem and Lewis Farms, these sorts of areas. What we're saying is the MNO is a sunk cost. The core of the city, eh, whatever, we already built it. Let it just rot and let's focus on these external areas, which is very insidious because it's this, what I talked about at the start of the episode, it's this halfway measure to say, eh, we tried, but we failed. Yeah, We tried the infill thing. But we failed. But we didn't really try the infill thing. We didn't go all the way through. Infill developers really want to do innovative things that change neighborhoods for the better. But we have put these regulations and overlays that says we cannot change these neighborhoods. So the city has, on one hand, said, here's our best offering. And on the other hand, saying, well, but you can't use any of it. 
and then seems to throw both arms up in the air when it fails inevitably. We should have ripped the Band-Aid off and just made all the infield stuff easy to do right at the beginning and put up with the political fallout as opposed to this trickle effect. I don't know that the infill fallout was light. I, I don't know if you talk to counselors and I don't think that they came out ahead on this. I think people hate infill either, either way. way. Yeah. Um, so might as well have made a nice city about it. I'm sure we'll cover more of this in the future. I want to talk quickly about downtown has become, quote, a tipping point in the quest to become Edmonton's tech hub, report finds. Very interesting new report from the Downtown Business Association. Every year they have a MBA student work with them on some sort of topic about the downtown. Last year it was retail. This year they decided to do tech. And the report that came out, I mean, I guess it's good to have somebody else talking about tech. There's not a lot of earth-shattering news in this report. Probably the most interesting recommendation of the five that they made is that we should create a downtown tech accelerator. People have already been calling for more accelerators. That's not really a shocking thing. Uh, like sort of an innovation hub? Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it also talks about building tech-focused buildings, whatever that means, uh, retaining homegrown talent, yes, continuing to enhance the downtown urban experience, Sure. Didn't need a tech report to say that. And collaborate to increase the number of successful startups and tech companies downtown. So as I said, kind of light on the sort of like earth shattering, this is going to change everything kind of uh, approach. But they held this event. They announced the report. They told everybody what was in it. And then they had a panel of local tech folks get up there and answer some questions about, you know, what should we do in our tech sector? And Chris Labossier, who we mentioned earlier in the show, he ripped the bandaid off. He said we should blow up the whole ecosystem. So we've talked before about EDC and Tech Edmonton and Startup and all these organizations that are trying to help startups in Edmonton. Chris is basically saying we should just blow the whole thing up and start over. That's a hot take. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very interesting. He got, you know, quite a lot of attention as a result of this on Twitter and, and at the event itself. Uh, I think a lot of people in this in the innovation sector don't necessarily disagree. So what's what's the justification here? What's the alternative? It just like start. Does he say we don't need these organizations or just that these organizations have become cumbersome and we need to start fresh? Yeah, basically that we need to start fresh. He talks about the or origin story of Startup Edmonton in the early days of that organization and that it had this great community grassroots vibe to it. And that's what made it successful. And then we sold it to EEDC and it lost all of the magic. You and say we because you were on the Startup Edmonton board. Chris and I were both part of this, right? So um, that's one aspect of it. He also says, though, that these organizations have just been around for a while now and they're trying to preserve entrenched interests, right? You get to the state where instead of actually doing what would be better for startups, or in this case, startups downtown, people do things that are better for them and their job security and the longevity of their organization. And I think that's what he's pushing back against. Other than Chris Labossier's hot takes, was there anything else that came out of the panel? Well, David Shepard, MLA for Edmonton Center, was there, and he asked about the role of government in the tech sector and what that should be. And most of the panel agreed that there's a role for government, but they shouldn't overprescribe what we should do about tech. And then earlier this morning, uh, David Shepard held a press conference to make a platform policy statement about the tax credits that the UCP government has frozen, basically had some entrepreneurs standing behind him as potted plants and said, you know, we should unfreeze these tax credits. Um, so his point of view is that the government should do things that government 
only the government can do, like tax credits in the case of uh, the two that he mentioned, or investments in education, which is one of the things the DBA report recommended. So kind of an interesting two days, all focused on what we can do to grow the tech sector. Something we've talked about before. I'm left with a feeling that we haven't moved much further ahead. Yeah, I'm seem to recalling it was six or eight months ago we were talking about the innovation hub and the city's plan to well we're gonna make this one-stop shop for tech innovation and everything sort of imploded at this point there was a request to evaluate the entire eedc business model and like should we so like even from the council there was a question of do we need the eedc what is their role in the city and are they important? And so that came up again this week. So last week we told you about the motion that Councillor Knack made to actually, and I, w- I blogged about this, right? Let, let's have this discussion in public. Uh, that motion went ahead and Councillor Walters tried to add a subsequent that basically said, do we need EEDC? What is the split between EEDC and Edmonton Global? And everybody else on council was like, wait a minute, like that's not the time. We're going to punt that to exec committee next week. So we will talk more about that, I'm sure. Uh, next week and in the weeks coming, but that's back on the table. What are what are the roles? What are the boundaries? And should we blow it up? I guess you'll have to tune in in the future to hear about that because we're out of time. But there's always time to tell you about, wow, a brand new ad. So let's read all about one of the newest members for the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, of which Speaking Municipally is a proud member. One of the new members is Life with Dementia. Host Jonna Lowther is an educator, author, and consultant who has a passion for senior care and a belief that the world needs more empathy for the true needs of people living with Alzheimer's disease and many other forms of dementia. Her show is realistic but full of hope and often touches on how art and creativity can help us live well for our whole lives. Um, You can read all about that on albertapodcastnetwork.com and see all the other shows in the network. Speaking Municipally is one of those. While you're on the internet, head on over to taprootedmonton.ca, subscribe, become a member. There's like nine different roundups you can subscribe to. I'm subscribed to the Arts Roundup now because Fringe is over and it's called the Arts Roundup. I can hear about theater the whole year long. You can. Uh, And I can eschew sleeping for the whole year with all those arts shows. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.